0: Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Like Philip, uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, along with our senior pastor, Darwin Jordan, who is out, I think, officiating a wedding. This morning, we're still in the book of Luke. So if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Luke. We'll be in chapter 14, looking at verses 25 to 35. Looking ahead, we're going to stay in Luke over Palm Sunday, which is next Sunday. And as well, we're going to stay in Luke during Easter. But we're going to jump out of the current direction. We're going to jump ahead a little bit, I think. Well, I should say I know. Um, to uh, a couple couple sections after the resurrection for Easter especially. Um, and then we'll come back after Easter, uh, back to our where, where we left off, uh, which is this morning in chapter 14. Uh, before I read this, just a reminder. This whole chapter kind of fits together. And it fits together in this way that uh, Jesus um, has at the beginning of it is talking to uh, Pharisees and lawyers about this, uh, about several things, but mainly about uh, this idea of a banquet that the host calls and sends out invitations. And, and what we read about is that these people whom invitations went out to, they send back excuses. And there's a sense that Jesus is sort of honing in on this particular people group. In our text this morning, he takes that and he broadens it and he turns to the crowds which would be those who are following him and people would be following him not just this 12 but people would be following him for various reasons and he essentially says the exact same thing just in in a different vernacular to them which is uh, sending out a call would you come and follow me and what does that cost What are you willing to give up for that what, what is keeping you from this he's and, and, and it's really something that as we move out of this chapter but Over the next couple chapters, Jesus is going to the cross and he's getting pretty serious about what it means to follow him. But more importantly, what he has come to do, Uh, that there's no more casual followers of him anymore because where he's going is death. And are we aware of that? And that's actually what we're going to look at this morning as we look at what a disciple is and what it means to be a disciple. So sort of with that in mind, I know that's a lot. Let me read for us God's word this morning from chapter 14, verses 25. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began began to build and was not able to finish. What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we ask now that you would do a miracle, and by a miracle that you would change our hearts, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, um, that you would be glorified in the process. We ask this all in your Son's name. Amen. As I said, this morning we're going to be talking about discipleship. What is it? What does it look like? And I think most of the time when we hear the word discipleship, perhaps maybe that's just us, I don't know, but we tend to think about it in a religious context, um, disciples of Jesus or just uh, some type of maybe even cult following. I'm a disciple of this person. But it's a funny word and, and it's, it's one that you know, perhaps maybe if you're not familiar with church culture or maybe you haven't been around the church uh, for any length of time, what is this discipleship thing? And, and, and I start here just to say what, what's important is that this term is really just a term that says, this is, I'm a follower, I'm a learner, Um, And the point is, is that we're all disciples of something, you know, discipleship isn't just sort of an option. It's not just for religious people. Everybody is a disciple of something. And so the question we really have to ask ourselves, uh, and not just are we a disciple of Jesus, but what are we a disciple of? Who are we following? And the Christian has to ask that too, obviously. I claim Jesus, but what does my life look like? That kind of gets to the heart here of what we're going to look at this morning. But who do you follow? Who or what do you want to be? Might be another question to get at that. Where do your loves take you? That's what you're a disciple of. So it's associated with religion, but everyone is a disciple of something or someone. Everyone. We are all following something. The question is, what is that? discipleship in our culture is alive and well <laughs> if you wondered if it wasn't it absolutely is and it comes in all kinds of forms we can be disciples of a particular you know political tribe right we we all know the political climate today how hostile it can be you can be a disciple of that you can be a disciple of certain social movements right? what are you posting a lot about on social media that'll tell you this is, this is just this is one of the ways that you can figure this out. Disciples of sports teams, right? It, we don't bring babies home from the hospital before we have baptized them in something of Texas, right? Like, we're disciples of sports teams, celebrities, theology, or even theological figures, right? We don't want so much just to follow somebody. We want to be that person. And we want all the people we come in contact with to, to, um, to agree and to be that person as well. And the list goes on. Um, And I need to say this, it's good to be a disciple of many things because that means you're learning, right? It means that you're open and you are somebody who is teachable. But the problem our text warns us of is that there is always one person or there is one thing that sits on top of that list, right? There's always one thing or one person that sits on top of that list. What is it or who is it? Because if you're going to follow Jesus, it has to be him. It has to be him. And this gets to what we're going to look at for the majority of our time. Discipleship for Jesus is these four things that are in your bulletin, right? It's single-mindedness, it's preferential, it's cross-bearing, and it's unconditional. And these are the four things, there's probably more than this, but these are the the four things that I want you to walk away with as a Christian, but also as a non-Christian, to understand what it means to follow Jesus if you would consider that. But certainly as a Christian, reflect on your own life, Where do I line up with these things as a Christ follower? So let's look at that first one, single-minded. I want to start this sermon on discipleship where Jesus ends his talk on discipleship in this section with salt there in verses 34 to 35. Salt is this metaphor that he uses to summarize what it means to be his disciple. Why salt? And it's really for two reasons. One, we need to think about how salt works, but more importantly, how salt loses its taste or its saltiness. Salt, this is first how it works. When put on food, does what? It permeates the entire entree. Okay, when you think about that, if you go out to lunch today and happen to have mashed potatoes, if you pour salt on there, right, and you work that in, it, it changes the whole bit, the whole portion, right? Nobody's going to go through a line or go through the drive-thru, for example, and, and get those amazing McDonald's fries, Um, and, and start eating fries and also take a salt packet and just start sort of doing this. You don't, we don't eat salt like that. We don't partition it out by itself. It goes into the food, right? To permeate the entire thing. This is how it works. This is how Jesus has a mind of being a disciple of his will be like salt so that as you follow him, as you go out into the world, you, what you permeate all that you come in contact with the whole thing. This is why he uses that metaphor. Okay, But notice what Jesus focuses on here. Salt that loses its flavor and how useless it is once it no longer is salty. How does that happen? It's a huge question for us moving forward in this text. How would we lose our flavor, so to speak, as Christians? And the short answer is this. Salt loses its saltiness when it becomes diluted. It's no surprise. The problem for us, though, is that we, we know, recognize salt as the sort of stable, ionic compound of sodium chloride, right? Table salt. It's hard for that to lose its form and function. It's stable. But salt back in Jesus' time wasn't as stable, right? And oftentimes it came in this bowl. was a powdery substance. And, and as the bowl got passed around, things would kind of get mixed in there and dumped in there. And at some point it would be so diluted, it would just become something different. And you would have to toss it out and put new salt in there, right? Or, you know, just go without salt for the rest of the meal. This is how salt loses its saltiness it becomes diluted. And Jesus is saying that you can't follow me, you can't be devoted to me when you have these other things in your life. If you're not single minded about coming after me, that's how salt loses its taste. To be my disciple means you must be single-minded. You must be committed. You must be loyal. You must come after me and no one else. I must be number one on that list. You want to be little D disciples of all these other things? Great. You want to have interests and hobbies? Great. You want to be a learner? Great. Do that. But there's got to be something that sits at the top of that list. And I'm just telling you right now, if you're going to come after me, this is Jesus speaking, I have to be it. There's no exceptions. No exceptions. Another way to put this is you shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment. Or another way to put this is no servant can serve what? Two masters. And Luke will talk about this in two chapters from now. So you see where he's building, where he's going. He'll he'll record these words of Jesus. You cannot have two masters, either you will hate one and love the other. An interesting language for our text even this morning. This is chapter sixteen. Back to our current text. To be single-minded as a disciple is to have one master, is to have one God. That's what Jesus is saying in summary over this whole entire chapter here. Both with the banquet call, the invite, and also now to the crowds as he changes up the metaphor. You can't have a heart deluded, if you will, with other loves pulling you in multiple directions. This is the banquet invitation. The host sends it out, and what does he get back, right? He gets like excuses such as, I just bought land, I can't. I just got some cattle, I can't. I just got married, I can't. What are those? Right? Those are other loves. Those are other things that are sitting at the top of, of, of your list. Those are excuses, if you will. In other words, you're single-minded maybe about those things more than you are about following Jesus. And Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple if you are not single-minded about coming after me. This is the first one. And this one sort of sets the tone for everything else we're going to talk about, using that metaphor, salt, okay? So let's move on to the second one, preferential. Um, And this kind of probably gets to the the part of the text here that is maybe most confusing, certainly to me, uh, and difficult, which is to understand, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, what does he mean by this? Why does he use the word hate here? Why would you just use this language? Well, the word for hate here denotes attitude or action, not emotion. Okay? I'm going to try to tease that out a little bit. But attitude or action, not emotion. Jesus isn't talking or asking you to hate someone emotionally. If If he were, not only would he be contradicting himself, but he would be going against the fifth commandment here. Rather, he's asking you to make a choice. He's asking you to make a choice. Which do you prefer by the way that you live your life? Which do you prefer by what you choose to spend your time on? Who gets to have ultimate authority over you? Might be another way to ask that question. Is it Jesus or is it your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, your children, etc.? At least once a semester when Ada and I did college ministry at the University of Alabama for RUF, we would have a student, at least once, come up and say, look, I want to follow Jesus, I want to become a Christian, but my parents don't want me to be. Wouldn't that be dishonoring them? It's a good question. Somebody's paying attention, right? And when we we think about that, obviously, though, when we we look at what Jesus is saying, and of course what the student might be saying, the answer is no. 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 But this is exactly what he is talking about here in verse 26. It's preferential. It's, It's hate by comparison. If you want to use that phrase, we'll look at that later on. But at some point in your life, to choose to follow Jesus is to, in fact, say no to others. And we do that respectfully. But you have to make a decision. And this is what he's getting at. You can't just follow me sort of half in, half out, which is probably what we can assume some of the crowds are doing. I'm just kind of here for along for the ride. If this is this big you know, military takeover, I just want to be on the right side of history here, maybe some people like that. And he's saying, no, 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 That's not what this is about. But we have, to, we have to know that following Jesus says that at some point we have to say no to others. We have to recognize who it is that will have ultimate authority and claims over our life. Is it our parents? Is it our spouse, children, siblings, and so on? This is what he's getting at. But here's what really brings this text into view. It's not even yourself who gets preference over Jesus here. And see, this really, you know, being a disciple, being single-minded, is preferential love for him over anything and anyone else, even yourself. This is really, I think, what really smacks our culture in the face today with our sort of hyper-individualistic, right, you be you and, and I'll be me and, you know, follow your dreams and um, you know, all, all that stuff Or all that matters is if I'm true to myself True to me And, and they really, the answer is no That's not all that matters <laughs> That's called selfishness <laughs> Right? That's just loving yourself more than anything else To be Jesus' disciple is to love him ultimately Even over yourself Even over the things that you want Even over your desires As we'll see here in a minute But to love him over anything else Let me try to explain this hate by comparison thing again uh, Philip Ryken points out in this commentary uh, how Jacob in Genesis 29. You know, Jacob um, fell in love with Rachel, and he went and worked seven years for Rachel, and then he got fooled and was given Leah, and he worked seven more years for Rachel. Familiar for, with that story? If you go to that language, it's the same language. If you look at this text here in verse 29 or chapter 29, verse um, I think it's uh, somewhere 30. But he says this. He says Rachel. He says he says. The text says that he loved Rachel more than Leah. Excuse me. And see, that's the comparison part that I want you to hone in on. Because in the very next verse, it says that Leah was hated. Okay? To hate, in this sense, what is getting at, is to have preferential affection. Preferential affection. He goes on to say, It is to love one thing more than another so that if it comes down to a choice, there is no doubt as to which affection we will choose. it's hate by comparison. The same is true for the same way that Jesus is using this word in Luke. It is preferential affection. Thomas Boston says it this way. He says, No man can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him in the world. Right? We we hear that. We say, well, what, what is dearer to anyone than their parents, than their spouse, their siblings? What is dearer to anyone than themselves? Nothing. But Jesus says, to be my disciple, I must be dearer to you than even these. This is preferential. It's hate by comparison. No wonder Jesus uses such strong language. But actually, it's the Bible throughout that uses such strong language because God demands it. He deserves it. He deserves that preferential affection. He deserves to be number one. Or else he's not God. Or something else. Being a disciple is giving preferential love and affection to who you follow over anyone else. As a side note, I feel like I need to throw this in here. This demands further discussion, which I get, when it comes to relationships between parents and children. I feel like I've already sort of thrown some bombs out there for you to discuss at lunch. Let me try to soften that a little bit. How you obey and honor your parents at age 8 is different than how you will obey and honor your parents at twenty-eight. At 48, right? So we've got to recognize that there are changes in our relationship to our parents. Um, at age eight, giving Jesus' preferential love often looks like obeying your parents, right? At, at 48, preferential love might look like taking care of your parents, right? So we just side note, I don't want to go down that rabbit trail, but let me just sort of soften that edge a little bit. It does take wisdom and conversation for us to understand and recognize that God has given us parents, right? And so obviously you follow, you know, if I'm supposed to obey God, why am I supposed to ignore my parents? And that's not always the case. And then um, that's situational. And come talk to your pastor about that when he gets back in the town. <laughs> All right, let's move on. I just wanted to touch on that. In case for small groups that came up tonight, I think that's important to look at. That's the second one, preferential affection. This is the hate. It's hate by comparison. We're going to pick that up here in a second, a little bit further. But you got to see that to be Jesus' disciple... Right? You've got to be single-minded. It's preferential affection. And then now uh, it's cross-bearing. This is the second time that Luke has recorded Jesus saying, If anyone should come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Uh, Back in chapter 9, we we heard this from Jesus as Luke recorded. Often, though, when we hear this, uh, we kind of use this phrase sometimes in our vernacular. It weakens the statement. You might uh, say to yourself, man, I got stuck in traffic for an hour coming home from work. Today Or the, the kids have just been awful. Well, I guess that's just my cross to bear. Right? Maybe you use that phrase in, in, in that way. I know that I have at times. But when we, when we use this expression like this, we are weakening its meaning. And thus what Jesus meant when he said this. Because when people of this day saw a man in the streets carrying a cross, surrounded by Roman soldiers, mind you, they knew that was a one-way trip. They knew that that was, and what that meant, was a loss of life. The cross is a call to death of life. This is what Jesus means when he says this. To be his disciple is to lay down your life, to put it to death, but also to receive the life that Jesus gives you as his disciple. It is suffering as a result of following Jesus. And this looks like two things for us this morning. There's the death that that you you experience, the suffering sort of internally as you become this new person. But then there's also the external suffering of just, I'm going to follow Jesus, and that might mean that somebody wants to cut my head off. Right? The first one, just briefly, the death of your life that is suffering as you transition from this old self to this new self. Right, what I might refer to as internal suffering. Right, it's all those old habits that you used to have before you became a Christian. Right, maybe this isn't you, but it'll just in case it is, before I became a Christian on Sunday, I got to sleep in. I got to watch football till whenever I got tired and went to bed. Um, I got to go meet my friends and go have brunch. Um, I got to do whatever I wanted to do on Sunday, right? Because I belonged to myself. Right, I was, in one sense, selfish in that. But when I became a Christian, everything changed. I had, new, had to give up habits. I had to to, to take on new things. And this, this is that internal suffering that is cross bearing for us. All right now, I come to church, and it's great. But sometimes sleeping in is better. Don't answer that. But you get what I'm saying, right? We take on we take on all kinds of new things. Like the way that you think about your money before you became a Christian. Completely changes after you become a Christian. And that hurts. I got to give to who now? I can't just kind of go and spin lavishly however I want to. And it changes, right? Our, our sexual ethic changes. Before you became a Christian, who, who told you what your sexual ethic was? You did. Well, not really, but you think you did, right? You sort of got it from osmosis from everybody else. But when you choose to follow Jesus, right, that changes, Right? Now, this idea that sex is now only located in the confines of marriage is, 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 is the way you live your life. And then not only that, marriage is defined by a man and a woman. That changes a lot, especially for people today. Um, and it goes on and on and on and on. And, and the point is, is that there is this moment of, of as we trust and accept, there's this internal suffering going on as we break away from this old self and as we come this new self. The suffering, put it this way, is the transition of giving up your life for the one Jesus gives you. It's not easy, which is why Jesus gives us two parables here about counting the costs, right? Do you know what you're getting into? Can you afford this? Might be another way to ask that question. Who decides to build a house without first figuring out if they have enough money to finish the job? This is what the parable is. So Jesus asks, or who goes to war before figuring out if the war is even winnable right now given your resources? Have you considered these things? Have you considered what this will look like in your life ultimately to give these things up? Often, this is actually how we find out if we are truly single-minded as a disciple or follower of Jesus. If there is something I can't give up, or I might phrase it this way, if there is something I am not willing to give up, this is what you are a disciple of. That is what you are following. Because that is ultimately what you are worshiping. And see, what I love about Christianity regardless of what anybody will say to you, is Jesus doesn't come to you, as we'll see here later in the last point, and say, look, I'm only dying on the cross if you give this up now. He actually is kinder than that. Are you willing to give this up? Are you willing to consider loosening the idols that you carry with you in exchange for me? I'm always reminded of uh, this. In Deuteronomy, as Moses has died, And uh, it's the speech that Joshua is giving as he goes into the promised land. And as you read through that speech, you notice in one verse he says, And remember to, to get rid of your idols. And why is he saying that? Because they still have them. It's amazing patience, amazing grace. Are you willing to give those up? Is what he is asking here. Because those things that we say no to, that we hold so tightly to, the perfection of of, of, of our lives, of family, of, of money, of our jobs, of who we want to be, self-actualization, whatever you want to call it. Those things that we white-knuckle, we say, I'm not giving this up. That's what you're a disciple of. That is what your, your heart is truly following. And Jesus is saying, there is cost to following me. Don't think that there isn't. There's a cross here to bear, and it is going to hurt. There's going to be suffering. It is not just sort of this, I got stuck in traffic suffering. It is a death, a death of life. Right, this is the first one. The next one is just the external suffering that I mentioned earlier of the persecution for following Jesus. We'll hear more about this in the coming weeks as we approach Easter, as our friends all over the world who do profess faith, who do come to Christ and more hostile, areas of this world, know that by doing so, they are signing their death wish. Nobody would be a member in this church if we asked you to sign this, knowing that it would probably mean you'd be dead within two years. I shouldn't say no one, but you get, you get the contrast here. The real external suffering and persecution that I'm thankful we don't experience, but that most and a lot of Christians throughout the world do. This is what cross bearing means. This gets to the heart of it, friends. There, there was no confusion for those who heard Jesus, who didn't think, if I keep in this direction, that Rome will come in and crucify me. They'd already seen it. What did they do to John the Baptist? Right. we have to get inside our minds that this is what this means. This is what we're signing up for. Are you considering that cost? To be Jesus' disciple is to lay down your life, to put it to death, to receive the new life Jesus gives you as his disciple. It is a death to having authority over your life personally. And as Americans, as Texans, that is hard. The cross bearing that Jesus talks about it isn't done once or tw- twice in our lives. It isn't done at your baptism. It isn't done uh, when you first take communion. It isn't done uh, when you had that really emotional moment at camp. It is done every single day. Luke uses the word bear in our, in our version this morning, which I, I think it's closer to that. <clears throat> the bear our cross, which is an ongoing process. Have you considered this? And this might lead you to ask the question, well, how do I do this? How do I get into the thick of what it means to be a cross bearer as a disciple of Jesus? And here's the answer. You have to hate your life. And here's this language again. New Testament scholar Norval Geldenhoys puts it this way. The general idea that these words of Jesus about bearing the cross refer to passive submission to all kinds of afflictions like disappointments pain, sickness, and grief and some, and, and, and come upon, that come upon man in this life is totally wrong. He, Jesus, meant thereby that whosoever desires to follow him must be willing to hate his own life and even be crucified by Roman authorities for it. How do I hate my own life? Why would I want to hate my own life? See, you hate your life by loving Jesus and the life that he gives you more. It's, it's that hate by comparison. <clears throat> Here's what Jesus is trying to get you to see in this text and what I want you to see. You already hate your life by comparison. You just haven't given up the fact that you think you can still get it. And how do, how do I know that? What do we mean by that? Well, one generation uses the phrase keep it up with the joneses, right? Another generation uses the social media, Instagram or Facebook. What have we been doing this past weekend? If you've been on social media. Man, another ski trip, awesome, spring break, beach trip. Oh, they look amazing, right? All right, keep it up with the joneses, right? Look at see the car they just got. See they're moving moving to the north of town, whatever that would be for you. I don't know. It's that comparison. You start looking at everybody else's life. You start saying, I wish I had taken that vacation. I wish I had those friends. I wish I had that body. I wish I had that perfect family. And now what are you doing? You, you're hating your own life by comparison. And it's not emotional. It's more attitude. You already do this. The problem is, I already do this. The problem is, I think I can get that life. But it's an illusion, friends. It is never happening. And it never was intended to happen. What Jesus has offered to you this morning is, if you follow me, I want you to die to that. I want to give you something so much better, though. You see that? Even though that something better might involve suffering. Might involve cross-bearing. Look, do we need to reflect on our lives and and understand the things of the old self, as it were, and, and where those idols still are rooted and those things that we say we can't live without? Do we need to reflect on that? Absolutely. Do we need to uncover those things? Absolutely. Do we need to pay attention to those things? Absolutely. But here's the deal. You will never bear a cross just by uncovering idols. You have to replace that with something better. This gets back to the single-mindedness component of this. Something has to sit at the top of that list. And it's not just sort of this, I'll decide and make Jesus number one on my, my, my list. It'll never happen. Something more powerful has to take place. You have to replace these old idols that you're finding with something new and more powerful. This is what Jesus is giving you. And what is it? It is himself. It is himself. This whole idea of replacing these old affections in our hearts, these old habits, if you will, with new affections is everything that Thomas Chalmers wrote about. And I would commend this paper to you Uh, when he wrote about this paper called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He says this, even the strongest resolve is not enough to dislodge an affection by leaving it void. Why? What does he mean by that? Because the heart will just find something else to put there. You have to actively replace it with something. And when Jesus calls us to be his disciple, he is calling us to replace all those old affections with himself. When we say that Jesus may become more beautiful and believable to us, this is what we mean. That we actually pray, God, make make Jesus more beautiful and believable to me than any other thing so that he sits up here, And all these other things that are throned in my life. Taking up our cross then is Jesus calling us to die to our lives. Our wants and desires and needs and rights. And to take up the life he gives us. Now does that come naturally? Is that easy? No. And if somebody is telling you that it is. Walk the other way. But is it good? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is what Jesus is offering you and all of its suffering and all of its joy, is it the best and fullest way for you to live life? Absolutely. I would actually argue what you're wanting as you look at other people's amazing spring break trips and as you wonder what the Jones are doing this weekend, right? Like everything you want that to be, Jesus is offering you. You just think it comes in a different sort of filter, better lighting. It comes with a cross. It comes with you laying down your life and taking up his. That's what cross bearing is. What should cross bearing, great question for small groups tonight, plug, plug. What should cross bearing look like for you today? I want you to ask that question in your small group. How are you learning to hate your lives? If there's a lot of visitors present, maybe leave that question aside. All right, if we haven't unpacked that, but if, 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 you know, if you feel like it's appropriate, how are you learning to hate your lives? And remember, it's not an emotional hate, it's a behavioral, it's a hate by comparison. And maybe the better question for us is where? Where? And what's replacing all those old affections? This is cross bearing. The last thing, this will, this will be a conclusion for us. <clears throat> discipleship is unconditional. So, discipleship is single minded it's preferential, it's cross-bearing, and it's unconditional. If discipleship is all these things I just mentioned, it has to be unconditional as well. And here's what I mean. You and I cannot come to Jesus with our ifs, right? We cannot come to Jesus and say, I will follow you if, right? I will follow you if, as I think Tim Keller puts so well in this whole on this text, you have to take all of your ifs and throw them away. If you choose to come after Jesus, that's what he's saying to you in this text. I would add one more. I would say not only throw away your ifs, but you have to throw away all your, I didn't sign up for this. If you choose to follow Jesus, it has to be unconditional. Discipleship for Jesus must come without any strings attached. We cannot say to him, I'll follow you if you give me the life I've always wanted, if you give me the money, if you give me the convenience, if you give me the comfort. Likewise, we can't follow Jesus when things are good. And then when tragedy hits and we lose our jobs, perhaps we lose a loved one, or perhaps we personally are diagnosed with something that we're not getting over. We can't get to that point and say, look, you took this from me, and that's not what I signed up for. Oh, yes, you did. You did. You just didn't count that cost. Cannot come to Jesus conditionally. If you're a Christian in this room, can you say that you come to him unconditionally? And that's a a diagnostic question. None of us do this perfectly. Please hear that this morning. But let us renew that question in our minds afresh. And unfortunately, the way we ultimately though find out The answer to this question is when something we love, perhaps too much, is taken away. But when that happens, and this is where I want to leave you, we must remember that that's how Jesus loved you. Right? And if if you're not a Christian here this morning, I I want you to hear anything, so I want you to hear this. Jesus has and always will love you unconditionally. That is, when everything was taken away from him, right? When everything was taken away from him, his glory, his rights, his life, that is when he hung until it was truly finished. He did this for you. He never bailed, friends. He never thought about leaving. He never said, I didn't sign up for this. He never said, I'll die for these people if. I'll die for Ryan if he gets his act together. If they start worshiping me, if they start going to church, if they stop, if they stop, you know, all this other stuff, they stop overeating and drinking, whatever you want to say. If they become better people then I will. He never said it. He never said it. And you know what? He never will. He dies for you unconditionally. But following him cannot come. Therefore, we cannot bring our conditions with it. Jesus says, it's all or nothing. Either I offer my life for all their sin or none of it. And the cross tells us that Jesus chose all. Either we as the church live in light of what Jesus has done for us unconditionally, which is lay his life down for us on the cross or else we will always come to him with our conditions, with our ifs. And see, when we get to the bottom of this, when we see this last one, as it turns out, Jesus's unconditional love for you, friends, It is the new affection that has the power to overturn all of our affections and powers that control your life. That's it. That's the only thing that can do this. It is his grace, friends. He is the one who shows us what unconditional devotion and love is all about. And it's this type of love that once you catch it, right, once you get around it, it changes you. Changes all of you. And it changes everything and everyone that you come into contact with. Sort of like salt. As it goes into the portion and permeates the whole thing. What is a disciple? It's single-minded. It's preferential love. It's cross-bearing. And it's unconditional. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Luke's recording of Jesus' words this morning to us as he calls us to love him. In summary, he wants us to love him. Would we love him? Would we do it in a way that shows our devotion to him above all other things? Would you give us the power then to see your love, your grace? To, to direct our hearts and our minds to be single-minded. Right? To understand and, and to be more devoted uh, and preferential to Jesus. To learn and to desire and to um, know the cost of what he is calling us to. And the crosses that we will have to bear for him. But would we do so unconditionally seeing his love for us in that way. Would we not bring our conditions because he did not bring his conditions upon us as he hung there for all of our sin? Would that be the one that changes us, that helps us afresh in many ways, whether we are hearing this for the first time or for the thousandth time, to reconsider and re-Annie and refresh our minds of what it means to follow him, to be his disciple. Would you do that for your glory? We pray this in your son's name. Amen.